Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I wonder if the therapist feels better after leading a group therapy session. We'll find out, in fact, because my next guest here is the, uh, the psychiatrist and author Irvin Yalom, whose books include Lying on the Couch When Nietzsche Wept, The Gift of Therapy, Mama and the Meaning of Life, Love's Executioner, Every Day Gets a Little Closer, a major textbook, The Theory and Practice of Group Psychotherapy, Essential Psychotherapy, Inpatient Group Psychotherapy, as opposed to Inpatient Group Psychotherapy, The Yalom Reader, and Encounter Group's First Facts. And his new book is called The Schopenhauer Cure. Irvin Yalom is also married to the writer Marilyn Yalom. And will you please welcome Irvin D. Yalom to West Coast Live. So go ahead, reassure everybody. You wrote this in 30 days, right? Uh, in about 30 days and five years. In five years. You're right. Not to mention many years of uh, group therapy, leading group therapy yourself. That's right, yeah. I heard a story the other day about Matisse uh, drawing a picture of someone in a cafe, and someone uh, said, oh, that's going to be worth thousands of dollars. How long did it take you to draw that? He said, oh, about 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Schopenhauer cure, uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, philosopher, character who depends on Schopenhauer to have cured himself of a, of a sexual obsession and addiction when regular personal therapy failed. But he ends up in a group therapy session, a group run by your hero, Julius, uh, who is facing death. And there are a number of issues as the characters entwine and so forth. What is it about group therapy and the nature of that kind of healing uh, that appeals to you as a psychiatrist? Well, first of all, it's one of the one of the I started this book with some ideas. You know, some authors start with we've heard a lot about writing today, but some authors start with a plot or characters. I really start with a set of ideas I want to explore, and I consider the novels to be teaching novels. I write them for students of psychotherapy, and since psychotherapy is a human process, and I'm not using any jargon, I mean, I think anyone who who's been in therapy or interested in therapy can read them. But, but group therapy is uh, vastly misrepresented the media. Uh, I don't know if any of you know of a um, sitcom or TV or a movie in which group therapy is presented even nearly accurately. It's always sort of an object of ridicule. You know, think of the Bob Newhart show, for example. So I wanted to present an accurate view of group therapy. So what was it Bob Newhart did that wasn't authentic? Well, uh, the characters were meeting outside all the time. Nothing was taken extremely seriously. What was not going on there is something that goes on with all group therapists who lead a group for a long period of time. A group gets to a point where it is extremely powerful. It's almost magical. It's like you come to the group and you're dipping into this ambience, a, a kind of a healing ambience, and everyone gets affected, even the therapist. You see a time that happens when almost everyone in the group gets better together. It's like a, a veritable mercy ship that takes a lot of people to another place. And that does not get represented uh, in, in, in some of the, the movies I've seen. So that's what I, one of the things I wanted to do in this book. Well, there's also a, a, an extraordinary kind of vulnerability that people open themselves to when a half a dozen people sit in a room together and tell their most intimate secrets, fears, feelings to a group of people that they must come to trust. 
Right, and that's one of the jobs of the group therapist, a little different from the individual therapist. You can't just be an individual therapist and train for that and then start to lead a group because in a group, you've got not only the work with each of the patients in the group, but you've got this group that you've got to somehow shape and what you were saying right there, you've got to create an atmosphere of cohesiveness and trust. You've got to be able to trust what's happening in the group and there's got to be a sense of confidentiality. There's got to be a sense that when you reveal something, it's going to be understood and, uh, and not used against you in some way. You've got Julius Hertzfeld, your, your, uh, your hero of the, of, of the book, constantly kind of dipping into a bag of, of his tricks, of his techniques to use to change the conversation. If it gets too personal and you want to focus it on the process of, of, of the group therapy, that, that he's very concerned with maintaining the balance and, 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 and kind of guiding. He's kind of a guide through people's emotions. Right, Julius is interested, as all group therapists are, should be, interested in the uh, process, which means the relationship between all the people in the group. Um, the, the, we work in the here and now. And I don't spend a lot of time dealing with past history of any of the members because anything that goes wrong between them and other people gets revealed in the process of the group. If, they're, if people happen to be arrogant or self-effacing or self-conscious or seductive, any of these things, we don't need to hear about them because they will become evident in the way that person relates to the other members of the group. So it's a perfect arena in which interpersonal problems get identified and then worked on, worked through, and changed uh, just in the arena of the here and now of the group. And that's what Julius does. He's always focusing on what's happening here between the members. And interleaved between the chapters uh, are you're kind of like Melville and Moby Dick and his explications on the on whaling. You've got chapters about Arthur Schopenhauer, the philosopher, and you quote him and some of his aphorisms, and you have one of your characters having given himself not a psychological cure but a philosophical cure by reading the works of, of Schopenhauer. And I, I wonder if, if this was represents sort of a way of seeing that there are many ways in which somebody could be cured of their, of their problem. Well, that too. One of, the, one of the things I was interested in exploring in this novel is the contributions that philosophy makes to psychotherapy. You know, there's a sort of a burgeoning new profession uh, of, clin of philosophers, clinical philosophy, opening up, putting a shingle on their door, having, having um, uh, therapeutic conversations with patients on the basis of philosophy, not on the basis of clinical therapy. Uh, so I wanted to see what philosophy can contribute to the process of therapy. Well, for instance, you have in your, in your book here kind of an, a psychiatrist attitude, perhaps, toward this. You have your uh, psychiatrist go to visit this uh, former patient who it turns out is now a therapist. 431 Union Street in San Francisco was a modest stucco two-story corner building. In the vestibule, Julia saw on the directory Philip's name. Philip Slate, PhD, Philosophical Counseling. Philosophical Counseling? What the hell is that? Next, Julia snorted, it'll be barbers offering tonsorial therapy and greengrocers advertising legume counseling. <laughs> he ascended the stairs and pressed the bell. Right, Julius really didn't know much about philosophical counseling at that time. But the book is trying to show, well, what happens if you put a philosophical counselor and a regular clinical therapist in a group together? One of them's the leader, one's a member of the group. What kind of competition will there be between the two of them? Maybe, what, what are the contributions that each can make? And Philip, the other character, is a philosophical counselor who is the one that uh, Julius had failed with 20 years before that and has brought him back for a second trial, is in competition with Julius for the hearts and the minds of the group members. 
What was the role of pessimism in therapy? The role of pessimism in... I mean, Schopenhauer was a pessimist, some would see, and, and he helped somebody out with his pessimism. Right. Well, Schopenhauer was a pessimist, but uh, whether, whether or not he is a pessimist as a result of his philosophical uh, investigations or whether it's quite the opposite, whether he's a, a pessimist by nature because of the particular kind of autobiography he had. That's what I intersert these short little chapters on, on, on Schopenhauer's life, and that shapes his philosophy as a pessimist. Basically, he's uh, an existential, existential philosopher, as, as Nietzsche, I wrote a book on Nietzsche before that. Both Nietzsche and Schopenhauer saw the world as it was, I think, without any blinders, without any illusions, without any resort to supernatural means or religions or belief in other lives or past lives or things like that. They saw, you know, you're here, you're here for a certain period of time, there's life and there's death, and what can we do to live this life? Here's a, here's a line of Schopenhauer's that, that you've translated. The cheerfulness and buoyancy of our youth are due partly to the fact that we are climbing the hill of life and do not see death that lies at the foot of the other side. Or... Um, sex does not hesitate to intrude with its trash and to interfere with the negotiations of statesmen and the investigations of the learned. Every day it destroys the most valuable relationships. Indeed, it robs of all conscience those who were previously honorable and upright. Though at another time he'll also say that it's the major driving force of human beings. Well, Schopenhauer, I think, had a little problem with sex. Uh, he, he was, uh, I think, very sexually active early in life, and that's why I think that I'm patterning Philip. The, my character, Philip, is Schopenhauer incarnated. I'm giving him all the personality characteristics of Schopenhauer. And there was a time Schopenhauer was very sexually active in his life. Much later, he entered the, the, the land of uh, gonadal tranquility. Uh, gonadal tranquility. <laughs> that's a, that's the eagle has landed. <laughs> Tranquility base. <laughs> That's a line from a poet friend of mine, but it's, it's a good line. Schopenhauer sometimes thought of the sun as sex as being like the sun that wouldn't allow you to see the stars. And when the sexual drive had, had diminished, then he could see life for what it really was and a lot of things that sex had blinded him to. So overall, he came out being extremely negative and wanted to somehow get away from the, from the drives that sex uh, put upon us. There, there seems to be gonadal aversion in our land nowadays. I mean, there's a, there's a strange, but also mammary aversion that's going on. Any, what's your take on what's going on in our culture nowadays? Well, it's not only aversion, but it's strong attraction, too. There's a tension and there's a battle between the two. But uh, I mean, my take on it is that, uh, that we're not changing sexually. It's always there. And of course, as many people, I feel the idea of abstinence training in schools is ridiculous because it's going to happen. And we want to be able to teach our students and our, our younger people how to protect themselves from, from fatal illnesses. Uh, here's another Schopenhauer line. By the time I was 30, I was heartily sick and tired of having to regard as my equals creatures who were not really so at all. As long as a cat is young, it plays with paper pellets because it regards these as alive and as something similar to itself. It has been the same for me with human bipeds. Yes, he always talked of other people as bipeds. Schopenhauer was an incredibly isolated and a cantankerous guy. He disliked other people. He felt that, uh, he said once that, that, you know, if you have a secret uh, and you keep it silent, then it's, uh, it, you know, it's your prisoner. 
if you ever tell it to anyone, you are its prisoner. And on the, on, therefore, on the fruit of silence, uh, on the tree of silence hangs the fruits of peace. So he really was uh, extremely uh, misanthropic in every way. And I started this novel with saying, this is the person I, I could not possibly imagine getting anything out of a group. But wouldn't it be a kick to get someone of this ilk in a therapy group? That was what I thought. So then I created a character who was just like him. And for reasons that it's kind of complicated, but you'll see in the novel, he's put into a therapy for a group for six months. And what can happen? Can anything possibly powerfully happen that might actually influence this man? Or he influence others as right. in, in, in the course of the group. There's a, and that's part of the tension that, that sets up in the, uh, in the book, where you have uh, this man who won't even look at anyone uh, and yet wants to be a therapist. Because one of the points that you make about a therapist, you believe, is that it needs to be a caring person. It's a helping profession. And if you don't care about people, how can you be a therapist? Right. That's how the book begins, with Philip, the, uh, the philosopher, wanting to get some supervision from Julius, uh, because he needs the number of hours to get his license. And Julius says, I can't possibly supervise you. You don't have the faintest idea what goes on between yourself and other people. And finally, they strike a bargain. Julius says, OK, I agree to supervise you, but first, you have to spend six months in my therapy group. There's no other way. And that's how I got Schopenhauer into group therapy. So the, group, the rest of the book takes place from there. Arthur Schopenhauer moved up to uh, San Francisco in the, uh, I guess, the 21st century, I suppose. And the 22nd? Which century are we in? I'm confused. We're in the 22nd. We're in the 22nd century. I don't know, 23rd? 23rd century. It's a very modernistic novel. They move around in Magneta Levitron cars. <clears throat> no. The Schopenhauer Cure, and uh, it's by Irvin D. Yalom, lying on the couch and when Nietzsche wept, some of his other fine novels. Thank you very much for being here on West Coast Live. Thanks for having me here. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.